following on from this morning as we looked at the glory of God and something of the, the majesty of who he is. I want for us this evening to spend some time looking at the mercy of God and to do so through this text that we have at the beginning of Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. It's a wonderful text of scripture. And it is a great comfort to those who are seeking the Lord and to those in whom God is at work and drawn on that way of grace, proving the irresistible grace of God, drawing them to himself. And the words of the text are also a comfort to those who do believe, because what it says is as true today as it ever has been, ever will be. And that should be a great encouragement to us as we go through and pray that it will be. But as we considered this morning, we need to be encountering again the reality of who God is to truly appreciate the magnificence of this text. God really is utterly glorious and he is great. It's staggering to even really begin to dwell on such great realities as the Trinity, the fact that God is one and yet as we saw this morning, three persons, the perfection of the Godhead is in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit not one third each, he is perfectly in all three. It's a very wonderful thing. And that God is never divided, that he is self-sufficient. He has no need of anything outside of himself. The fact that he is above time and space. You know, we're so constrained in our thinking, we can only really think of a, a beginning and an end, and yet with the Lord, we have to think of one who is at, without beginning, who is without end. And we use the word eternity, and yet we struggle to get our heads around it. And other words like everlasting, they help our little minds to try and begin to understand what we're talking about. When we think of the eternal God, it is just incredible. The eternal God. And this God who is spirit and utterly perfect in essence and attributes and when it comes to his character, we try and divide them up into elements to help us. And so there are his incommunicable attributes, those parts of his character which belong to him alone. Then there are his communicable attributes, those that we can grasp and relate to as the grace of God reveals them to us, but which we still only really begin to fathom. Things like his holiness and his love and his mercy. And, you know, the glorious God who holds all things in his hands, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, the one who knows the end from the beginning. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. You know, where we live, we're blessed that even in the, uh, the sort of estate that we're on, you know, we can look and we can see so many stars. It's wonderful to look up and to gaze. And, you know, you can try and give numbers to the galaxies and often the scientists do, don't they? But can you really number all of galaxies? Well, of course you can't. Stars are identified, but do we know the total number of stars? Can we understand space which never ends? Whatever direction you're going, you'll never come to the end. You can travel for eternity one way and you don't come to its end. It, it baffles our imagination and our thoughts. And yet, friends, God is greater than all of that. You know, in some amazing way, there is no part of creation 
that he is not aware of. He is God. He is separate from his creation, and yet he is aware of every tiny speck of his creation. It's the most wonderful thing. And we hear in the scriptures that he knows the hairs of our head and numbers them. He knows the fall of a sparrow. And what he's really saying there is he knows of our anxieties. He knows of our worries and our joys and our fears. God knows everything about everyone that he has created. We are in his control and we marvel at his greatness. And as we come to worship him tonight, we worship him in the greatness and the vastness and the immensity of his person. And yet we can also worship him in the tenderness and the kindness of of who he is, the wonder of his being. And you know, we mentioned this morning, there is a, a lovely balance for the believer of the greatness of God and the majesty of God. And yet in Christ, if we know the Lord, there is that warmth and intimacy of relationship with him. You know, he has made that way in which sinners like us can know him. To know God. That's incredible. To know God. And that way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. His own provision. And Jesus is the only way. And sin is sin. And whatever we are like, whatever differences there may be between us in our backgrounds and in our circumstances, the reality is all of us fall short of the glory of God. And there is no room for pride in this true gospel. There is no looking to self. And it's when we see ourselves as we really are, plucked from the pit, there is no pride. James 4 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this glorious God is the God that we long to know and to worship. And you say, well, how can we know God? Well, in our text, we have this wonderful language and imagery to help us understand more of God and how we can know him. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is he a heavy that it cannot hear. Now, that raises a question instantly. Do you know, the Lord Jesus said in John 4 that God is spirit. So why do the scriptures use terms like the hands of God and the eyes of God? Think of Habakkuk 1.13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You know, why are those things there? Well, in his graciousness, God has given descriptions that we can understand. And then we can get the idea of what he is like and what he has done. And so Isaiah says here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. And simply, friends, that means that God is not limited in any way. And he can reach even the furthest, even the most unlikely, the, the furthest off, far off. And he says that his ear is not so heavy that it cannot hear. He is aware of our cries. The eternal God knows every thought that we ever conceive. And that's the Lord and he deals with our immortal souls. Do you know, sometimes we use that word soul. But what is a soul? What do we mean when we talk of that? Well, everyone here has a soul. And it's the most important thing that you possess. The Lord Jesus said, didn't he? You know, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? You know, if you're here and you're not the Lord's tonight, let me try and explain a little for you. It's not an easy thing to describe. It's easy to describe each other physically. 
you know, we look at each other and we can describe each other, but how do you describe a soul? What about your soul? Well, the Bible tells us that our souls are the very essence, the very center of who we are. And sometimes the Bible calls it the heart, and that's not just speaking of emotions. The very heart of you. And it has expressions. It expresses itself in our minds, in our memories, in our affections, our conscience, in our will. And generally, the Bible uses three, mind, affections, will. And in our fallen state, Genesis 6, 5 says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It says that we are dead in sin. And so sin ruins every part of us. There is that total depravity there. Now, that doesn't mean that we are the worst that we can be. It means that sin mars every part of us. There's no part of us that is not affected by sin. And outside of Christ, left to our natural state, we, we run to the darkness. We love that which is unworthy and our affections embrace what they should not. Our, our conscience hardens and we look to what is convenient. The, the will decides for foolish things. Outside of Christ, we're lost. We're ruined. That's our condition. But that's why this text is so wonderful. The hand of God is not shortened, that he cannot reach even those in that condition. His ear is not in any way deaf, so he is able to hear even the weakest cry. So a wonderful picture. So let's just consider it together. What about this whole avenue, God's arm not shortened? Well, the divine hand that created us can recreate us as well. And it's a great thing that he's not only able, but he is willing. You know, I asked the question, I was just thinking about this, how far can we be from God? How far can we be from God? I came into my mind, Ephesians 2, 2, which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's the, the state outside of Christ. And we see that all around us. We see people consumed in sin and greed and, and conflict and fighting and hatred, not just amongst individuals, amongst nations. We see a world that is ruined by sin. But then it goes on in Ephesians 2, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, that desire for physical thing and ambition for status and prosperity, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And what a description of you who were dead, totally incapable of any spiritual move or response, knowing a life. We might have some awareness that there is a God, a knowledge of right and wrong. God has planted that in us. Eternity is written on our hearts, but no inner life, no spark of spiritual life, spiritually dead, far, far away from him. There's a great distance between us and God, and we are so very far from God. Let me ask you a question. When you think of someone who is far from God, I wonder what you picture in your mind. What type of person you have in your mind who is far from God? Do you know, I often think that one of the most dangerous and far off is the one who comes to a place like this, where the means of grace are before them and they hear the gospel and yet they remain dead and unresponsive. 
They remain hard against the Lord and spurning the gospel. Do you know, it is a fearful thing to be under the sound of the word of God and yet remain outside of Christ. And there will be severe eternal punishment for those who have much opportunity and rejected it. And you know, the Bible is very clear. There are these great contrasts, contrasts between heaven and hell. There is no pain in heaven, but there is an unimaginable pain in hell. There is no sorrow in heaven, and yet there is the darkest sorrow in hell. There is no hunger in heaven, but there is hunger that is never satisfied and thirst that is never quenched in hell. There is no death in heaven, but there is continuous death for all eternity in hell. Hell is that place devoid of hope, without Christ, far off forever. And friend, to be without Christ tonight is to be without hope and to be in total despair. And yet here we have this wonderful text that says that God's arm is not shortened, that it cannot say, and his ear hears even the weakest cry. Do you know there are times when you talk to a person who maybe knows some of the facts of the gospel or, you know, of the Bible, and yet when you talk to them about knowing Christ for themselves, about salvation in Christ, there's just no life. It's like a, a, a wall of, of unbelief, and it, it seems unbreakable. And there are those who believe, and there are some who take this position, I would not, but there are those who believe that people have some grace in themselves, and they just need to be persuaded to believe in Jesus. And so you can understand with that mindset that really you try anything to get people's attention and, and get them to believe, but the starting point is wrong. And that leads to trouble as you go on. And the sad thing is that many who believe even in the doctrines of grace and the teaching of Scripture, salvation is of the Lord, they slowly embrace that idea that we should be pragmatic at the cost of Scripture to reach people and just to make it as easy as possible to believe. But friend, we can't convert anyone. And simply what you attract people with, you've got to keep them with. But our hope and the biblical reality is that God is God and he always reaches people in the same way. He breaks into lives. He intervenes. He gives life. He brings true life and he changes the heart and he transforms the individual. The whole life is affected. He brings life to the dead. That's why that passage, Ephesians 2, 1, it says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's so glorious when you see someone truly converted. You see the life of God. He regenerates. He gives new life. He, he stirs them. And then he brings the individual to the point of genuine conversion. He replaces spiritual death with life. And he gives the gifts of repentance and faith. All that is necessary our God gives. And then with that life, that regeneration, the time comes when the sinner is brought to that point and they're converted, God has been working in them, and then they're brought to that point where they believe in Jesus, cast themselves upon him, and they hear the gospel, and it comes from with a freshness, with a power and an application, and the Holy Spirit is at work. And it all comes together to save them with that trust in Christ. And for the individual, they know there is a work going on. They feel that change. They feel the difference. And 
You're brought to that position of belief. His arm is not shortened because it reached them. And you know, it gives us great hope, dear friends. Maybe you're here tonight and maybe you have a husband or a wife, a son, a daughter, brother, sister, father, mother, and they seem so unreachable. But all they are is dead, spiritually dead. And you can know that God is well able to make dead people live. And that means there's always hope. Even for those we think are the very furthest away, God is able to make alive. Do you know, I remember Mr. Hyam, Vernon Hyam, we sang one of his hymns, we're going to sing another one in a little while. He gave an example from his ministry of this. And uh, it stuck with me because I thought it was incredibly honest. And he said there was a lady in the Heath Church in Cardiff where he was pastor for many years. And uh, this dear lady in the church, she was only able to to come once on the Lord's Day and never at any other time she loved the Lord Jesus, but her husband hated anything to do with the gospel. And he said that he knew that she longed to be at all the meetings and she loved the Lord, but she faced this difficult situation at home and eventually the Lord called her home after many years and she died triumphantly facing with remarkable grace a terrible illness at the end of her life but she was such a testimony to the grace of God. A couple of years later, Mr. Hyam received a phone call from the hospital, and it was the husband of this very lovely lady who'd been a believer. Now, one thing that he said, that her husband had been very cruel to her throughout their married life, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. But anyway, this phone call came through, and her husband asked to see Mr. Hyam. And when he went, the man said to him, he said, I'm dying. He said, and I've been a terrible man, not least in the way that I've treated my wife. I felt throughout our lives together that I could frighten her, that I could even beat the faith out of her. He said, I banned her from praying, and yet she continued to pray for me, and I know that she was a wonderful woman. Mr. Heim said, she was a wonderful woman, and you've been a disgrace. And then this man said to the pastor, he called me today. And Miss Time said, who? He said, my wife's saviour, and now he's my saviour. And Mr. Hyam said he had a great conflict in his heart because he felt that this terrible man did not deserve to be called of God for what he had done. But then he thought this, what is mercy? Mercy is God's favour shown to undeserving people. And he asked himself, who am I that I should be saved? And he thought, you know, did Saul of Tarsus deserve mercy? Well, of course he didn't. He was a cruel murderer and persecutor, and yet God had his eye upon him and his hand was not shortened that it could not reach him. Friend, do you have someone on your heart who seems so far off from the Saviour? We should never give up. We know that the Lord will bring in his own, but we should never give up in our preaching and pleading and praying for our family, for our friends, for our acquaintances, for whoever, because this God is our God. And his arm is not shortened 
And what seems to us absolutely impossible, he is able to do. That is our God. You know, in our text, if you look a little bit further on, we're told of the sin of his people. And uh, really, it could be individual, it could be national, but verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So there's this, this wall, this barrier, this distance. And outside of Christ, we're in that position. We are without Christ, far off. No promise, no advantage, no hope, no God. That's where you were, he said. And the cloud of sin, like a terrible cloud of smog between us, separated. Then verse 3, your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. Such a vivid description and a vivid description of a sinner. Do you know, I look at my hands and think these hands can be so cruel. They can be so grasping, always looking for gain and for prospering self. You know, our hands can be kind or cruel, but they're servants, they're facilitators for the faculties of the soul, of the heart. Our fingers have meddled here and there and what damage they can do and have done. Think of our lips and our, our tongues. You know, you only have to read the, uh, James in the New Testament, dwelt at length on the damage that a single word can do. What harm a word can do in the assassination of a character. You can raise a heart and be a, a comfort with a kind word or a cutting word that destroys a person, or a brutal word that's not necessary and destroys their character in the eyes of others, what damage words can do. Then verse 4, no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. You know, again, people don't want the truth. You know, the, they trust the latest empty words. They speak lies. This is what we're like. And just as we find the description here, we find it too in the New Testament. And yet into that, friend, the gospel comes to us commanding and warning and pleading concerning the reality that we are all headed for eternity. And one day we will face the holy God and here you have this wonderful opportunity to get right with him. And even though you may have come this night and you may be far off, you can be brought near to know God for yourself. But I would impress upon you there is an urgency to this call. And so I wonder if you understand that. The Bible says now is the day of salvation and there is a wonderful opportunity for you to be saved even this night. And for those of us who do know the Lord, the challenge comes to us, are we urgent in our concern for the lost? Do we have that desire to reach them with the gospel of grace? You know, as far as we are concerned, we have a responsibility. We know the sovereignty of God. We trust in that and we thank God for that. But are we guilty of being silent? You know, we may say that our lives count and they do, but there are words as well and we have good news. We have to share the good news. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? If our children do well, we can't wait to share it. We're delighted and we want to tell others. You know, maybe we've read something that we found interesting and we, we want to share the, you know, the, the joys of what we've read. And how is it then that we can be so silent when men and women are heading to hell? A church has to have a vision and a burden. And friend, we are told to go out and preach the gospel. To a selective few, do we decide who should hear and who should not? 
No. We must preach to every creature. We bear that responsibility. And so the arm of God is not shortened that it cannot save. We need to have confidence in that and hope in that. But then, lastly, I just was thinking in this whole idea, the hands of Christ to accomplish our salvation. Do you know, I, again, I don't know what you think of when you think of the Lord Jesus. But I often like to think of him, that Old Testament picture, the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valleys, the chiefest among 10,000 to my soul. And that this precious one, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with the Father, and yet for our sake, humbled himself and came as a servant with a purpose to lay down his life that I might have life. And all of the Trinity being involved, the, you know, the great plan of salvation of the Father, the accomplishing of salvation of the Son, the application of this glorious salvation by the Holy Spirit, all there, the triune God involved. And you know, if we come and we believe we are drawn to the Son and He justifies us, brings us to the Father, and how does it happen? The Spirit of God is at work. Do you know there are those who do not and cannot hear, they just miss it all. It's heartbreaking when you speak to people, they just they just got no idea. And you can try and explain it as simply as you can, and yet they have no idea. But then there are those, we thank God for them, and they begin to hear. And maybe at first it disturbs them, maybe even irritates them. But the hand of God begins to deal with them, as it were, and the soul is awakened and there seems to be a hearing. And then there's a crying to the Lord and the person is being drawn by the irresistible grace of God. And you say, well, where are they drawn to? Well, to the Lord Jesus, to the only Savior, the sinner's only hope. We are condemned sinners. We are lost lawbreakers, never meeting God's standard. We can never keep his law. We can never love him perfectly, love our neighbors as ourselves, no matter how hard we try. The power and principle of sin is within us. We'll always fall short of the glory of God. Just think of the perfection that the law demands. The radiance of God's glory. It's incredible. God is holy and totally pure and unchangeable. He cannot look upon sin. And yet Jesus has done that for us. He has fulfilled the law. He comes to fulfill the law in our place. He is utterly perfect. He is without sin. He knew no sin. When we're confronted with the law, it condemns us. The Bible says it is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And with those requirements set before us, we, we fall short. We've got no righteousness. There's no way of acceptance with God through this. Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect life is the righteousness we need. And you know also our sin needs to be dealt with and we need to be rescued from the guilt and the power of sin. A price needs to be paid to release us. The wages of sin is death, eternal damnation. And that's, dear friends, when we come to look at the cross and we see him there, the altogether lovely one, Nailed to the cross, crown of thorns upon his head. The Lord Jesus Christ accomplishing the rescue that had been planned from before the beginning of the world. His love for 
lost men and women took him to the cross and he came into this world to be crucified for those hands to be pierced in order to be lifted on a cross so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's such a staggering exchange, dear friends. The Lord Jesus did something which brings this glorious transaction, this great exchange. The sinner who comes to Jesus with all of their guilt and all of their sin and all of their condemnation as they trust in Christ it is all laid upon him and they receive this wonderful forgiveness and his perfection and righteousness and life everlasting and deliverance all given to the believer freely of his grace. And as we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ alone, all of which are gift of God's grace, we bring nothing but our sin. Christ gives us everything. And he endured the pain and the punishment and the wrath and the hell that we deserved. He bore that dreadful weight for us. He paid the price in full. And so when I believe in Jesus, his life, his words, his actions, his ways, all his natural attitude to everything is counted as if it were mine. It's a remarkable thing. We call it to be robed in his righteousness. Imputed righteousness, just think of that. Here I come, O Lord, weighed down by my sin. My sin nailed to the cross, all of it. And then we're given his righteousness. And as sinners we are forgiven and we are fitted for glory. We are adopted, we are accepted, and we are given a beauty not our own, but Christ's. And we don't value, dear friends, what Christ has done until we are brought to know it for ourselves. We don't understand the wonder of this until we actually give our hearts to Christ. We, we never know what he has done or how wonderful his kindness is until our own hearts are touched by it when we're brought by the grace of God into true faith and we become personally under the sense of our indebtedness to Jesus Christ. And that is the work of God, you see. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. We don't value the Lord Jesus until we know him. Do you know how long that all of you could know Jesus Christ for yourself? That you would really know him knowing your own heart and be convinced that Jesus Christ is not only a saviour, he is the saviour. More than that, he's your saviour. And when we're converted, we come to see that he is more than anything. We need him. He's the one who transforms our life and gives us hope to live, hope in death, hope for time, hope for eternity. He is the one that we desperately need. I'd like to ask you personally tonight, do you know him? Do you know this saviour for yourself? Have you met Christ? Have you heard his call? 
Have you come to see that nothing really matters but to know this glorious God where we began and to live for God, to live for his glory? Have you come to put your trust personally in this blessed and holy Savior, Jesus Christ, who died the just for the unjust? It's the only way to have eternal life. And you know, it's a wonderful thing because above all the noise of this world, God hears the cry of desperate sinners, the desperation and faith. And if in your heart this night you truly desire to know the way to heaven, and if in your heart now God is stirring you to ask him to give you light and understanding of grace, you can be sure that he can hear. He can hear your cry. He's listening to what you are saying in your heart of hearts, in the depth of your soul. Do you have that faith? I urge you not to leave this place tonight without crying to the Lord, oh God, save me. Please save me. Please give me to believe in Jesus Christ. Please forgive me. You know, it is so wonderful to know the Savior. And we long that many others would know this stunning mercy in the year ahead. You know, we don't know what the Lord may do this year. We long that there will be a great turning of the tide. And we trust that this God, whose arm is not shortened, that it cannot save, might indeed make his arm bare, and that he might draw many to this wonderful salvation throughout this year. Friend, the mercy of God will be our song for all eternity, that God should deal with us in this way. I trust that it is the joy of your heart, that it is the hope of your heart, and that you this night are resting in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, and how we rejoice and praise and glorify his name. Amen.